Our reading today comes from Philippians chapter 2, reading from verses 1 to 11. <clears throat> if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thanks, Coralie. What a magnificent passage of scripture. How can we fathom this? But let's ask the Lord to help us to do whatever we can with him leading us this morning. Loving Father, how precious it is to be among your people and to be able to worship you, Lord. What, a, what an amazing privilege. Lord, help us to be captured by that, that we can be here so free to lift up our eyes and our hearts and just you know, cast all of our burdens and our cares upon you and our worship upon you and just to enjoy listening to you and worshipping you and adoring you and saying thank you for your presence amongst us here this morning. So Lord, open our eyes and our hearts and our ears. Just do what you want to do. Please help us to, to be those who are not frightened but have the courage and the humility to let Christ just breathe his love, his life, his word into our hearts, we pray. And may others see that that makes all the difference in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we continue our series uh, this morning through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Last week, Pastor Darrell led us through chapter 1 and verses 12 to 30. And in that chapter, for example, we looked at what Paul meant when he said in verse 21, for me, sorry, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, what an awesome Scripture, just one verse like that. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, and we saw that Paul's main focus in, in life was to glorify Christ and advance his gospel, whether it be that he lived or died, it made no difference. And to die, to die was to gain the wonder to gain the glory and the absolute certainty of eternal life. I wonder if you have that this morning. 
You can't lose in Christ when you die, you just gain even more. And so for each of us as believers, the whole of our life, this is the working out of this scripture, the whole of our life, every dimension of our life as believers in Christ ought to be a living presentation, a living testament of the, of the indwelling Christ. And then together, the, the unified advancement of the gospel of Christ. Amen? And all of that with great joy, great joy. Joy is a key theme through Paul's letter. And remember, he wrote this from a Roman prison. And he's talking about joy. <laughs> or if you want the, the very contemporary Greek word, it's noi. You didn't get that, did you? Pastor Darrell did. See? You didn't, you didn't see the slide? Anyway, don't worry about it. Just talk. You know, forget it. Just forget it. It's not true. It's joy, not, not noy. Yeah, I'll do that. What a, it's a magnificent book. It really is. It's a beautiful letter. We, we come to chapter 2 this morning, and Paul continues his exhortation to his beloved church at Philippi. And he loves them dearly. And we love you guys dearly too, believe it or not, as shepherds of this flock here at Sunnybank. And he wants to draw their focus, as his is, he wants to draw their focus on spiritual unity because he knows that there are already in the, in the church, those in the church who are causing disunity through such attitudes as self-centeredness, and the like, which Paul mentions through the letter later on as well. And so in verse 1, to combat the natural human inclination of selfishness and self-centeredness, Paul introduces four Christ-like qualities or motives that he recognises are in fact present in the lives of these believers and therefore where their primary focus ought to be. And so he says this in verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So he's mentioning these four qualities. And these qualities that Paul is talking about, again, these are realities. These are certainties in the lives of his people. So they're not questionable things. They're not things that, that cause any doubt at all. They're not questionable. And so as the original Greek also implies, the if clauses can also be translated since. So it would read like this. Since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since comfort from his love, since fellowship with the spirit, since tenderness and compassion, so you can say that. These are certainties. Since these things are there. In fact, can I, I want to challenge us again, all of us. Can I ask you, do you recognise these same amazing Christ-like qualities in your own life? Are they there? You know, do you recognise them? Do others recognise them in you? Do you, you, know, do you? do you long for these things? <laughs> to motivate and inspire every aspect and dimension of your life? 
among fellow believers in the church and even to those who don't yet know Christ? Is it your desire that you want these things that Paul's talked about here, these attitudes, these motives, these qualities of Christ? Lord, let them permeate every dimension of my life, please. Do it. You know, the world says, for me to live is me. It's about me. It's about what my, I want. My life, my body, my rights, my world, my pleasure. However, the Bible teaches us through the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ. Christ. It's all about him. His life in me. His life through me. For my life ceased. Get this. I died. My life died when I came to Christ. Paul puts it like this when he wrote his letter to the Galatians in 2.20. He says this. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life that I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a saviour. And in a similar way, Paul's saying these same things to the Philippian believers. He says, since you have been crucified with Christ and your old life is dead and because Christ now lives in you, therefore, so does his qualities, so should his attitude. If Christ lives in you, doesn't he bring with him those qualities, the attitude that he has? Does that make sense? Of course. His qualities, his motives, his attitudes including the four mentioned in, in, in verse 1. Bearing that in mind then, so, verse 2, then make my joy complete. Since these things are present in you, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. You know, it's as if Paul is saying... I, I, I want to celebrate with great joy. Yes, great joy, even though I'm in this Roman prison. Who cares? I want to celebrate with great joy if these words of mine that come from God, he says, if these words of mine come to you and they translate in a change in your life, demonstrating Christ-like attitudes and behaviour where the love of God so unifies his people together in his church at Philippi. He says, when I see that happening, when my words become action in your life, he said, that's going to make my joy complete. When I see the change. And I love what he says. Listen to these powerful words as he wrote to the Colossian believers. He says this. He says, and over all these virtues, he says, put on love, which binds them all together in Perfect unity. Hey, you want to know the secret to unity? Start to love one another as he loves us. It's powerful. 
And it needs to happen in our lives, folks. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, loved the guy's writing. In his reflection on these inspired words from the Apostle Paul, he says this. Speaking about Paul, he says, How urgently he pleads, how he multiplies expressions. Love among Christians is so precious that he begs for it as if for his own life. Be it, be it, sorry, be it ours never to fan the flames of disunity, but always increase the holy affection of our Christian brothers and sisters. Can you say amen to that? And then R.P. Martin, he says this, the Philippians are left in no doubt as to the apostles' desire for them, that they should share a common outlook. As you are one in heart with, with other people, so you will be one in mind with them. Thus, undesirable features will be removed and unity and harmony will prevail. And my dear brothers and sisters here at SDBC, is this, is this not our deep desire for ourselves, for our church? Is our focus truly on Christ and the salvation plan he implemented through the cross for all lost to humanity? As we met around the communion table, are we not again so grateful that our sins are forgiven? As we come before the cross, confessing and repenting of sin and, and know that as we do that, we're washed in the blood of Christ, completely white as snow. By the power of the blood of Christ. Is this not our desire? If it's our desire, how can this not then unify us as a people of God? And keep that unity strong as we focus on him. Because, you know, when we lose that focus, what happens? Well, I believe that we very easily just drift back to the old nature where Paul knew that some of his precious flock in the church at Philippi were heading. And he issues this warning now to them. Verses 3 and 4, he says... Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. You know, selfish ambition to me implies rivalry. It implies treading over someone else to get to where I want and to get what I want. And I don't care about who I'm going to claw over and walk over to get what I want and where I want to get to. That's what the world says. That's what selfish ambition, I believe, is all about. All right, put that over here. What a complete contrast we have to the person of Jesus Christ. What a total contrast to this person, this amazing, indescribable person of Jesus Christ and the life that he came to give and to live in and through you and me. 
So why do we give any place to selfish ambition? Why is it there? I'm struggling a bit. Because if we died to those things, why are they still there in our lives? Didn't we die to that? And Paul speaks about this same thing. He wrote to the Corinthian church and he said this to them about selfish ambition and what it all means. Listen to what Paul says here. 2 Corinthians 2.20 For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. Paul says, I fear. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, (coughs) slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. He fears that that would be in his church. Hey, we need to fear that that stuff doesn't come into our church. Be Be on guard about that. Selfish ambition. And, and, and Paul could see elements of that starting to filter into his church and he's so concerned about that and so he ought to be. And so ought we to be. And what about vain conceit? What does that mean? Well, vain conceit basically, as, as far as I'm concerned, it means empty, groundless pride. That's what it is. Empty, groundless pride. Vain conceit. But listen, have you noticed that when we align ourselves to the cross, truly align ourselves to the cross, we discover that there's really not much that we can boast about. Have you noticed that? That when we stand in front of the cross of Christ, there's not a whole lot, folks, that we can boast about. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to your cross I cling. And it seems the hymn writer discovered that truth. Can I ask, have we discovered that too? Paul to the Galatians again, he says this, Galatians 6.14, he says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, it comes through, doesn't it? Over and over again, the fact that you and I in Christ, we're dead to the old life. We have a new life now. And it's Jesus in you. The hope of glory. Genuine Christ-endowed humility before God, which I believe in turn will express itself in genuine humility before each other, is the antidote to selfishness and pride. Can you read that? Forget about, I don't, I'm not much good with putting punctuations in, so if there's commas and whatever, forget it. Don't be distracted. Just look at what I believe God dropped into my head. Genuine Christ-endowed humility before God, which in turn will express itself, I believe, absolutely in genuine humility before each other, is the antidote to selfishness and pride. The fact is that pride and humility cannot coexist. Listen to how the Apostle Peter says 
what he says about these very things. Listen to this, powerful words from God this morning to us all. Through the Apostle Peter here, look what he says. He says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, listen, let, you know, drink this in, folks. Let it, let it fall over, you know, bathe you this morning. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favour or gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he, that he may lift you up in due time. See, rather than trying to lift yourself up, which is what pride does, correct? And listen, God opposes it, so it's not a good thing to do. You don't want to go there. Don't do anything that God opposes. You won't get too far. But better to let God lift you up in his way and in his time. Because it'll have a far healthier and I believe a far more rewarding outcome than you trying to do it yourself. So what does all this, what does it mean then? Let's move on. What, what does it mean to then value others above yourselves? Verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Well, what does all that mean? Well, can I say what it doesn't mean is that you and I have to have some kind of false or unrealistic views of, of, of our own gifts. It's not denying that. It's not having some false or unrealistic view from, from the gifts. And, and by the way, the gifts that you have come from God. They're not yours. They come from God to be used for the, the edification of the body. They come from the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you neglect the welfare of your family or yourself either. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is having concern. It's having consideration for others that precedes concern and consideration for yourself. It's putting others first and not yourself. Practical illustration, which I think is a challenge. Two cars come into a very crowded shopping centre. Two cars come together. There's one space left. You need that space. The other person's looking at you with their eyes wide open and they want that space too. You come together like that. What are you going to do? What does the flesh do? Up yours, mate. I'm going in. We don't, should I have said that? No, I don't want to I'm not sure if I should have said that. But. Humility says... I'm going to step aside and let the other person have that. And then I'm going to trust God that he's going to supply one because he knows those needs. That's a, look, that's just a silly practical thing, but there you go. Someone once said that, I don't know who it was, but someone once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Do you get that? It's not thinking less of yourself, because God thinks a whole lot about you. He loves you deeply, passionately. And you need to love you and you need to have that self-esteem. It's not talking about that, but it's talking about thinking of yourself less. Putting yourself to the side as it were and, and putting others first. You know the joy? 
Jesus first, O is others, Y is yourself, joy, you know that thing? You know, um, also it's not that we neglect or we suppress our own interests, but that in Christ our concern is wide enough to genuinely include the interests of others in our vision as well. Look, let me explain. This is an amazing, uh, this, this thing, I went to a concert First time I'd ever been to this concert, it was a Christmas concert at Southbank. Can't even remember what it was called. Hundreds and hundreds of people go. Do you know what it is? It's at Southbank somewhere. They put this Christmas thing on every year. And we got tickets to go there. I think our kids um, shouted us there. But they went, we went to this concert. Magnificent orchestras. Hundreds of people. And um, I love the fact that the conductor of this orchestra, not only at the end, which was a, a brilliant performance... Not only at the end did he accept the applause of people. You know how the conductor steps out, I think it's protocol, and he bows, and people applauded. It was, he applauded. What I loved was that he then stepped aside, here's his whole orchestra, and he directs the applause to them. And, listen, the applause grew louder when he did that. Isn't that fantastic? I love that. He, he directed the applause to all of his musicians whom he valued and whom he had his interests at heart. They're, yeah. And as I said, when he did that, I thought, good on you, mate. Well done. Acknowledge your team. Put them there too. Include them. Include them. It's not all about you. It's about your team. In fact, you wouldn't even be there if you never had your team. Your orchestra... Hey, can I ask this? Who's in your orchestra? Who's in your, org your orchestra that you need to value and direct the applause to as well? Who's in your family? Who's in your social network? Who who's in your workplace? Who's in your uni? I don't care where you are, but who's in that team around you that you need to direct the applause to and acknowledge? and include them in your vision. It could be that person who just works quietly, not looking for any accolades, not looking for any applause. They just get about doing their job. Be nice for you to walk up to them if they're in your team and say, listen, just want to say, I value you. Thank you so much for what you do. You change someone's life, people. You change their day. You change the colour of their day by just simply doing that genuinely. Don't just throw out rubbish, but do it genuinely. Let them into the applause. Commentator Alec Motier, he says this, Paul's joy is not in the, in the well-being of the church in general, but specifically in a church living the gospel life of unity in mind, heart and will, devoted to the task of unselfish mutual care. Isn't that good? I can tell you're excited about it. <laughs> All right. So to whom and where do we see the greatest example of all that Paul is talking about here all that Paul is calling his church at Philippi to emulate who is the greatest example 
Verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset or attitude as Christ Jesus. That's the NIV version. Yep, the AMP's up there as well. The Amplified, love the Amplified version. Let's read that one too. Let this same attitude and purpose and humble mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Let him, let him be your example in humility. You won't get it wrong if he is your example. In Christ, we have the highest, the most perfect example of how we as believers ought to behave as those who are indwelt by him. Hey, are you indwelt by the Holy Spirit this morning? The answer is, <clears throat> if you are, then you're indwelt by his humility as well. So let it come out. Let the Lord Jesus Christ be our model, our greatest example of humility and selflessness in every facet and framework of our lives. We need him. We need his example of humility. We need his example of selflessness. We need that to permeate every single facet and framework of our lives. I don't know about you, but I ask the question, how can we begin to fathom the wonder, the mystery and the love of God through the Son of God who left a state of inexpressible glory to take upon himself the most humble form of humanity? I want to say this to you. Fathom the cross. I dare you. Fathom the cross. And I dare you to stay the same if you do. You won't fathom it. You won't plummet the depths. But you can go there as best you can. I dare you to fathom the cross, my brother and my sister. And I dare you to remain the same if you do that. These verses from 6 to 11 have been described as a, a possible early Christian hymn that Paul either composed himself or quoted from another source. But certainly he incorporates these magnificent words into what one writer calls, listen, a masterly statement of New Testament Christology in his letter to the Philippians. A masterly statement of New Testament Christology. And it is. It is a masterly Exposition, if you like, or statement of Christology. Commentator L. Richards, he reflects on these thoughts and he says this. He says to, about Paul, whether this is a hymn or not, he says, whatever its origin, this account of Christ's incarnation serves as a supreme illustration of humility. As God the Son willingly surrendered the prerogatives of deity to die as a human being for our sins. 
Look, that's just many. If you got some commentaries on Philippians, you'll find there are dozens and dozens of different thoughts and ideas and explanations about these verses from 6 to 11. They are magnificent. They're beautiful. I don't know whether you can fully fathom them. And we could spend probably several weeks, if more, Pastor Darrell might do it one day, in trying to unpack what these verses really mean. They're magnificent verses. What does it all mean? Well, as I said, so many views and opinions on what these verses actually mean, but I want to tell you I love what Charles Wesley says when he simply said these words. Look at that. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. It is a mystery. How can the immortal die? You can fathom that if you like, but what a mystery, what a magnificent mystery. The immortal dies. One of his hymns. How God the Father made all this happen with God the Son, it is a mystery. We cannot fathom that. We cannot know that in this life. That it did happen, we are absolutely assured of. Amen? And absolutely grateful we stand before God. We kneel before God and say, God, I don't know how you did it, but I thank you that you did it. This would be a song, I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why he cared. I don't know why Jesus loved me, but I'm glad. I'm so glad he did. Something like that. And we don't know why, but we do know he did it. And we're here this morning as the recipients of his grace, of his love, of his mercy. How can these things not unify us as a people of God? Absolutely assured. Can I ask, is, is that your position this morning? You know, that you are without doubt, without doubt that you know Jesus Christ came to this earth in obedience and in humility to the Father's will that he should die on the cross for your sin and mine. Are you an absolute assurance of that? You have this full assurance that you know that when Jesus did that, that he secured our forgiveness, our freedom from God's righteous judgment and condemnation that every human soul was otherwise subject to. And that's the fact. That's, the, that's a solemn thing. That's a sobering thing. That without Christ, we are already under God's condemnation. Read John 3, 16, 17. But by our faith in him, all that's removed because Christ took it all on the cross. And by doing what Jesus did, he made it possible, the absolute certainty of the gift of eternal life. What a saviour. Jesus, our supreme example of humility and self-denial, yet self-giving, offered himself in obedience to the Father. And Paul says, to you and Paul says that you and I are to have the same attitude that this Jesus has. And since Jesus did all that, since he did that, Paul says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a powerful, powerful word. Listen to this. Angels and demons, the living and the dead, the saved and the lost will acknowledge him as Lord, will recognise his lordship and confess that he is Lord even, even as God himself. All contradiction will cease. All denial will end. And the general acknowledgement and confession that Jesus Christ is Lord will advance the glory of the Father who exalted him and bestowed on him that name. In this also the glorification of the Father is the ultimate purpose of all things. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. You can say that too if you want. Jack J. Muller wrote those words, Muller. His is the name, I'll close with this, his is the name like no other. And the fact is that victory follows humiliation, it does. If you've ever felt humiliated, and when you are humiliated because of Jesus, not because of some dumb thing that you've done, but because of Jesus, if you get humiliated, then know that victory follows that. Victory follows humiliation as it did with Christ. And God's glory ultimately always, always prevails. And so it will be for you and me as we seek to be more like Jesus on the inside with our attitudes and motives and on the outside with our behaviours and practices demonstrating to each other and to the world that we are truly disciples of the living Christ. Then the world will see, hey, there's something different about that person. And they will know you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. And then furthermore, in accordance with his word, all of that, we need to then go and make disciples as we've been commanded to do. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that comes to our hearts as we read and meditate and soak in the scriptures, the living word of God. It's no wonder Peter said, Lord, where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life and you really do. So, Father, help us, we pray, to take these words and, Lord, that they would change us on the inside, change attitudes, change motives, so that outwardly people will see there is a difference in our behaviours, in our words, in our speech, in our, in, our, in our practices, Lord. We want authentic Christian experience from you, Father God, and we want the world to see that and we want to honour you by making disciples as you have commanded us to do. Help us, Lord, change us that we may be change agents in the power of the Holy Spirit in others' lives. We pray in Jesus' precious and almighty name. Amen.